Good morning. Today's reading is from the book of Amos, chapters 1, verses 1 through 2, and chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, and 21 through 24. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's the word of the Lord. It's like, uh, you know, um, Nate is very responsible. He was our reader and liturgist this morning. I noticed uh, when I printed it this morning that verses 21 through, chapter 5, verses 21 through 24 were missing. And so I said, Nate, did you, do you need this? Forgetting that, that that had been cut off from his reading. So, and if you miss chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, that's like the whole thing in Amos, you know? Uh, and, and, so, uh, and so thank you, Nate, for rolling with the punches there. Uh, because that's the, definitely the verses. If we're thinking of Amos, the famous verses from Amos, chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, justice rolling down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I mean, that, that's the climax of Amos. And so our, our sermon series this fall has been going through some of the, the high points of the Old Testament, the great personalities, the great stories, the great moments. And uh, as we're leading up to uh, Advent, which is going to start in just a couple of weeks here, and this morning we get to meet a truly unique figure in Scripture, the first of a kind, and that is Amos. Now, I think it's fair to say that actually when we meet Amos in the book of Amos, we don't get to know anything about him as a personality. His biographical sketch is almost less than a thumbnail. All we know is he comes from this town called Tekoa, which is in Judah. So at this point in time, there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. They've been separated. They have their own kings. And Amos gets started. He's from the south. He's from Judah. And he's given this message to bring to the north. And he is really the first of a kind, the first uh, in a string of what are known in Scripture as prophets. One commentary I read stated it as this. He said, it's the almost unanimous agreement that the book of Amos is the earliest of the prophetic books. And as such, it marks the beginning of a unique tradition in the history of religion, something brand new, a unique in the history of all religion. It's this, prophecies of the approaching end of the existence of God's people based upon God's judgment of them for failing to live in accordance to divine standards. The message of Amos has no predecessors that we can identify. For this reason alone, the book has rightly been marked by modern scholarship as one of the most important turning points in the history of the religion of Israel. 
More obvious to the contemporary reader, however, are two striking characteristics of the book. The power of its language, firstly, and secondly, the passion of its concern for the oppressed. So Amos is the first of a kind. The prophet as social critic. And it's a legacy that we live with today. It's one that has profoundly shaped the conscience of the modern world and its institutions as they have been shaped by both Judaism and Christianity. It's profoundly shaped our religious traditions. I think Martin Luther stands in the tradition of Amos, condemning the abuses and the excesses of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Luther was this very pious German Augustinian monk who in the year 1510 was sent by his superiors. He was having problems. He was struggling with his beliefs. And so they said, take a pilgrimage to Rome, 700 miles. What a trip. Probably just wanted to get rid of him for a few months, to be honest. And he took this pilgrimage. He, he went to Rome. And what struck him was not so much the, the kind of beauty of the pilgrimage sites that were there, but the venality of the church in Rome that, that had immersed itself in wealth and luxury and licentiousness where, where Christ had preached chastity and simplicity and care for the poor. And so Luther could not square that circle. And so seven years later, after this trip, he, he issued his prophetic denunciations that would take the form of the 95 debating points that he nailed to the Wittenberg Castle church door, directly in the line and legacy of Amos. Now his namesake, Martin Luther's namesake, Martin Luther King Jr., continued this prophetic tradition as a leader in the modern civil rights movement. And in fact, in King's most famous speech, the, the I Have a Dream speech that was August 28, 1963, a seminal moment in our country's history, before he launches into the most famous part of the speech, the lofty rhetoric about the dream that he has for this country, the beginning of it is a prophetic denunciation of America for failing to live up to its high ideals. And in fact, if you go watch this speech on YouTube, uh, the condensed version of it, unfortunately, they leave out the portion of the speech in which he quotes our passage from Amos today. But most American school children, if they're familiar with this passage from Amos at all, it's from hearing it quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. And so here's the paragraph in question that, that, that with King quoting Amos. And so I'll quote it verbatim, but I, but I think when we hear this, we, we, we see how this legacy continues to live with us. The king says, we cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of unspeak the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped, stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by Stein stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied so long as the Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and the Negro in New York City believes he has nothing to vote for. No, no, no. We are not satisfied and will not be satisfied until Justice rolls down like water, and righteousness like a mighty stream. And so 
Amos, this unique, first-of-a-kind figure, he, he, he foregrounds things that are constantly in the background of Scripture. And that is God's heart for justice and the connection between a, a vibrant faith and the pursuit of justice. And part of seeking justice that Amos points us to is, is denouncing injustice, pointing out where things are not right, where people are doing what is wrong. And of course, this term, justice, it's a contested and contestable concept, as it always has been. You know, the invocation of justice, talk of justice, you know, for more conservative Christians, they're suspicious when they hear that. They're suspicious when they hear people talk about justice. Especially, you know, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was this movement called the social gospel, and and the message there was, you know, deeds, not creeds. And, and the social gospel movement, some portions of it saw historic Christian beliefs as, as either irrelevant at best or, or as a, an obstacle to social progress and pursuing justice. And so they're wary also of the fact that, that when justice talk gets brought up, so often it's, it's a conflation of, you know, whatever white uh, Western progressives think is important at this moment. I think these are fair concerns and critiques, but there are also those who go so far to, if you were to quote a passage of Scripture from one of the prophets and, and not say that it's from the Bible, they'll say, you know, that this is, is coming from Karl Marx. Those who dismiss anyone with a passion for justice as a social justice warrior. Those who would say that any analysis of our country that looks at the historical and ongoing effects of race and racism is critical race theory. So you can be so allergic to the talk, any talk of justice, that you throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. Amos says we can't do that. And to those who see themselves on the left, the, the conservative critique ought to have some sting. Because, you know, far too often what, what passes as, as justice talk, even in, in, in the church, is just a baptized version of, of whatever the cause du jour might be. The Holy Spirit and the spirit of the age can never be conflated or equated and invoking something as a justice issue can sometimes be used as kind of a bullying tactic or, or a trump card. See, to me, that's a justice issue. So what can anyone say to object to that? And I think well, those who consider themselves on the left, they're, they're, they're more comfortable with this justice talk as it focuses on systems and structures and the state and redistribution as they're right to do. can also neglect things like culture, norms, values, personal responsibility, character, character morality, uh, family structure, can't ignore those either. And so as I hope we see in looking at this passage in Amos, that, that scripture offers us a much more complex, complete, and nuanced understanding of the meaning of and the demands of justice that, than could ever be encompassed by either the contemporary left or right in America today. And so for the rest of the sermon, I want us to look at this passage and focus on three things we see here. First, the God who is the God of justice. Second, asking this question, well, okay, we're invoking these concepts, justice and righteousness. What are they? And finally, what can we learn about the relationship between worship and a heart for justice and righteousness? So first, the God of justice. Now here I want to make a, a simple but important point. So last week, uh, even if you weren't here, you probably are familiar with the story of Elijah and God appears to him uh, on Mount Horeb as the still small voice. And the point, the temptation there is to kind of overgeneralize, that that's how God speaks to us now. God is not, you know, scary earthquake, fire, wind anymore, but God speaks to us gently with a still small voice. 
But Amos has something else to say. It says right away in chapter 1, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So this is not the still small voice. This is the lion's roar. One sometimes hears the objection people have to the God of the Bible. God is too mean. And, you know, we in the contemporary West often want a God who's kind of a mixture between a teddy bear and a genie. Warm, snuggly, you know, always uh, affirming us and, and giving us what we want when we want it. And there's only one problem. Well, there's, okay, there's more than one problem with that kind of God. But, but I say, what does a teddy bear genie God have to say about all the injustice in the world? What does this God say to the, to the refugees who are, are fleeing, fleeing persecution? What does he say to the, the missionaries being held hostage in Haiti? What does he say to, to the families who are, are living in communities that are flooded with you know, violence and gangs and drugs and, and no jobs and failing schools? What does he say to the children who are abused and neglected? What does he say to the soldiers maimed and killed by an imp- improvised explosive device? What, what does he say to, to families who are just minding their own business and then get killed in a drone strike? Right? The God who cares about injustice is, is a roaring lion because only such a God can do something about everything that is wrong with the world. When C.S. Lewis was writing the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, the one character that occurs in all seven of the books is Aslan. And uh, C.S. Lewis was not super subtle with his allegory. I, I, think, that's, I think that's good. Aslan is, is a Christ figure, obviously, but also, like Christ, you know, more than just a mere creature or beast, but, but, but fully human, fully divine. So, so this God-like, Christ-like figure is what Lewis does. He, he writes Aslan as a lion with good reason. And so the world into which the, the Pevensey children pass when they step through the wardrobe is to a world wracked by injustice. Things are not right. They are not as they should be. Right? The white witch, she purports to be in charge. You cross her. She's always turning Narnians into to stone. She has secret police who are spying on everyone. And worst of all, it's what? It's always winter and it's never Christmas. Matt Anderson, that hits him deep in his heart and his soul when he hears that. That's an unjust world. We can't have that. That's right. Oh my gosh, that's right. And so one of the great scenes, one of the greatest, most famous scenes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The family, you know, they go to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And I prefer the old BBC version of the Chronicles. That's, that's canon to me. The CGI version is not as good. The beavers are so great. My children laugh at the beavers in their beaver costumes. And I, like, I'm like, kids, this is so good. But they're at the beaver's house. And the beavers go, listen, they're excited because Aslan is on the move. These kids are here. That means Aslan is on the move. And the children ask, well, who is Aslan? And one of the beavers answers, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. And Susan goes, ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And here's where we get to just the classic line in the entire series. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. There's a good reason that that line sticks out in this entire wonderful series. It's, it's the most remembered. It's the most 
quoted because I think as Lewis is trying to write this allegory that, 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 that explains the God of Scripture to people, this line captures it. The God who cares about justice and righteousness is not safe, but he is good. The Bible calls him the Lion of Judah. That's right. And so all this leads to that second question. Okay, we're talking, we got Amos talking about justice and righteousness. And so let's look at this passage. What do those terms mean? And they're related. In Scripture, they often get packaged together. They're, they're a package deal, justice and righteousness. So, so there are two words that are not the same, but they mean similar things. Or they, like at the end of our passage, they, they, the, the parallelism, parallelism. And in Hebrew poetry, one of the common things is you have one line that says one thing, and the next line afterwards ends in such a way that they help you kind of mutually interpret one another and understand them. So let justice flow like waters, righteousness like a mighty stream. And justice is a term, you know, that we're familiar with. We use it all the time. Social justice, climate justice, economic justice, racial justice. But righteousness is not one that belongs to our everyday speech. If someone is righteous, we figure it has something to do, you know, vaguely with their religiosity. But in the middle portion of our passage, it says this, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And so for Amos, questions of good and evil are are questions of justice and righteousness. And so good, a good world is one where justice and righteousness are present and an evil one is when it's absent or or the standards are violated. And part of chapter 5, it wasn't included in our reading. Amos kind of says what he sees as the actual injustices that are occurring in his society that, that he is condemning Israel so powerfully for. And, and he talks a lot about the courtroom, justice at the gate. He talks about kind of the courtroom, and he talks about economic exploitation. And so when Amos is talking about justice at the gate, we got to keep in mind that was like the courtroom of ancient Israelite society. The elders would gather at the gate of the city, and if you had a problem, a dispute, a controversy, a question, if there was a crime, you would go there to have the dispute adjudicated. So if you're a laborer and you'd work for a day, you hadn't been paid your wages, you go to the city gate, and they're going to make it right. If a neighbor's ox had broken your fence and he wouldn't get it fixed, take your case to the city gate for justice. If your neighbor's ox gores your ox and kills your ox and he's not going to make restitution, take your case to the city gate for justice. And so the city gate was where what we think of as as civil and criminal cases, that's where they would be handled. Uh, People would testify, evidence would be collected, and and that's where the the fair and impartial administration of justice was supposed to take place because it would ensure the peace, the tranquility, the well-being of the entire community. This system was open to abuse. We can imagine the myriad ways in which that could happen. A prominent citizen, a rich citizen, could get away with their crimes. They could pay bribes. They could use their sort of gravitas and standing above other people to intimidate those who were supposed to speak the truth. They they could curry favor with the elders. They could swing the court in their favor. So Amos sees that there's one system of justice that's operating for the poor and another for the rich. And we go, okay, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And not only that, but Amos, he denounces those who who extract exorbitant rents from the poor. And what Amos is speaking to is a situation that's kind of like, it's basically sharecropping. You know that that 
that you have wealthy landowners who keep their tenants in what amounts to kind of a debt peonage. The landlords, the landowners, their wealth increases, and the tenants are barely scraping by. They can never, ever get ahead. And so Amos prophesies that, you know, he's saying, you all who are, are becoming wealthy at the expense of your, your tenants, you know, you are building these big, beautiful stone houses, these extra houses. You're never going to live in them because God is going to do something about it. And so what Amos is denouncing is a society in which the apparatus of, of communal justice has been completely compromised and the economic system is oriented toward the enrichment of the landed aristocracy at the expense of everyone else. But the great irony that Amos speaks to at the end of our passage is that this society is actually deeply religious, scrupulous in its religiosity. More on that in a moment. And so these gross injustices that Amos is, is condemning give us insight into what biblical justice and righteousness are. And in Hebrew, we can, I think this is a great time to use those, those Hebrew words. For justice, it's mishpat. And I love the one for righteousness, tzedakah. Mishpat and tzedakah. These are the, the two words. And so justice is really about the kind of proper ordering of society. It's, 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 it's the systems. It's the structure. It's, it's the networks. It's the relationships. And so justice is about ordering society in such a way that, that, that individuals and families and kinship networks can enjoy a shared peace and prosperity and piety. And so biblical justice is especially attentive, though, to the needs of those who are most vulnerable to exploitation or to indigence, the widow, the immigrant, the orphan, and the destitute. And those groups are vulnerable because they tend to be where people are cut off uh, from the folks who bear social responsibility to advocate and care for them. These are people who are kind of isolated. They're on their own. And the Bible gives special attention to them because we know that injustice is not equally distributed tends to fall on these people the most. And so a biblically just society is one in which everyone has their basic needs met and everyone has a chance to develop to their full potential so that they can provide for themselves. And it's one where they can fully participate in civic life, which in, in, in the Old Testament context is essentially the religious life of the people. So a just society is one where basic needs are met, dignity is afforded through self-development, and full participation in civic and religious life. That's a society where justice is flowing like waters. And so if mishpat is dealing with the, the kind of broader uh, social and societal situation, then tzedakah, or righteousness, it's about the interpersonal dimension. To be righteous is to behave or act correctly in relationship to other people. So to be a righteous judge, you judge justly and fairly. To be a righteous boss... You treat your workers fairly. A righteous business owner, pay your workers fairly, deliver a, a quality product or service to your customers, and operate your business ethnically, ethically. To be a righteous parent, to love, direct, discipline your children. To be a righteous spouse, love, support, listen, cherish, and care for your husband or wife. And to be righteous in relation to God, from a Christian perspective, is to be a faithful disciple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so justice is about social structures. Righteousness is about interpersonal relationships and individual behavior. And true justice includes both. I think this especially we see here how, how a biblical understanding of justice and righteousness exceed what's currently on offer from either the political left or political right in this country. But ultimately, the point of all of this 
is to make sure we're in right relationship to God, which brings me to the last thing I'm going to look at very briefly, and that is the relationship between justice and worship. And we're talking about a just society. It ultimately involves questions of teleology, and that's a fancy word that just means what are, what are, what is, what are human beings for? What's our purpose? Because we should probably have that in mind when we think about how we want to organize society justice. Different questions. Are, are, are human beings for finding our own and kind of maximizing our own happiness? Are, are we for maximizing, you know, the greatest pleasure for the greatest number? Are, are human beings for kind of defining our own sense of a good and meaningful life? For maximizing uh, freedom from interference from others? Are, are we about, you know, making sure that insofar as is possible to make sure that everyone is kind of equal from each according to our ability to each according to their need? You know, all these questions get at different answers if you want to answer the question, what is justice? What are human beings for? Are we for freedom? Are we for utility? Are we for equality? Christian tradition has other answers that encompass many of these, but go beyond them. There's the great question that I grew up with in my own tradition from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number one, what is the chief end of man? What are human beings for? To glorify God and to enjoy God forever. And so ultimately, a just society is one that orients human beings toward what we were created for. And we were created for worship. But Amos makes clear that, 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 that this worship we offer has to be reflective of the character of the God we worship if it is to be anything other than noxious to God. I mean, God condemns the worship of, of the people in Amos in the strongest possible language. There's no mincing of words. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Don't bring them here. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Now, some might hear this and think, okay, God is saying, Worship doesn't matter. All that matters, we got to be make sure we're coming correct in our justice work. And that's a complete misreading of this passage. What God is saying here and what Amos is saying is that worship matters so much. It's so important that God will not accept it when it is done by a people who are willingly and wantingly neglecting the demands of biblical justice. Think about it this way. What would you think of my preaching? What would you think of my sermon? What would you think of my ministry if all of a sudden you found out that, you know, I was in the back alley behind church, you know, smoking crack beforehand, and I was stealing from the collection box, and I was beating my children, and I was cheating on my wife, and I was getting drunk and driving around everywhere. You would go, this person has absolutely no credibility, no integrity. You would, I hope, try to, like, give me some help, but then probably, like, not have me continue in this role. I'd be making a mockery, a mockery of God by doing that. And Amos is saying, okay, well, we can focus on an individual. He's saying, this is happening writ large. Your walk doesn't match your, your talk. And the degree is, it's so off, right? There's never going to be perfect harmony, but it's so off that it's revolting to God. And this not, you know, we, when we read this, we should not be smug. We should fill us with dread. You know, are we guilty of doing the same? And so what God wants is justice and righteousness, right, that, that, that is abundant and, and endures. You know, Amos is prophesying in a place where water is scarce, it's precious. You have wadis that only fill up when it floods. 
When Amy and I lived in Ojai, we lived next to the Ventura River. Let me tell you about the Ventura River. It was basically a dry creek bed 99% of the time. The most you would see was little muddy puddles almost the entire year. Amos is saying, that's not going to cut it. However, when the rains came, when the Pineapple Express came and it dropped those rains on California, well, then that Ventura River would be mighty and flowing and full. See, Amos wants something like St. Anthony Falls on the Mississippi River. He's not talking about, you know, the Ventura River once in a blue moon. And so what starts with Amos, it culminates with Jesus, the kingdom of God at the heart of Jesus' message. It's Jesus' vision of the full instantiation of biblical justice and righteousness. The lowly get lifted up. Think about it. Read the Magnificat. Read Mary's song. That's biblical justice. The lowly are lifted up. The hungry get filled. The left out get brought in. The first is last. The one who's poor becomes rich. And sinners become saints. And so we'll close with this. I read it in a commentary this week. I found it so helpful. Just saying, what's the connection between worship and, and, and justice? And it's these, these five points very briefly. One is re-examining our focus. In, in church context, we can get very caught up in what do we measure? You know, uh, and so what we, what, me- what we measure matters. And so attendance and money, right? That's like the big deal. But instead, our focus should be on how are we living our life together in faithfulness to Christ. It's not about growing attendance. It's about growing the ministry, the work of Christ. Promoting integrity in worship, right? Does our our walk match our talk? That's especially important for leaders. Third is committing ourselves to justice and righteousness. When we go out into the world, this isn't just a nice social club. We get together on Sunday mornings. I mean, it's a, you know, you are very nice people, but we're not together most of the week. And so committing ourselves to to doing God's work of justice and righteousness when, when we're not together. Fourth is serving all. We're not just inwardly focused community, make, making sure our needs met. That's the default mission statement of every organization is to meet the needs of its members. The church is different, and so we serve all. We're focused on the needs of the entire community. And lastly is to decompartmentalize. You know, what, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So integrating worship and justice, spirituality and social action. And, 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 and the money quote that I close with is this. It says, you know, praise without justice is hollow. Right? It's empty. It's just a show. It's a spectacle. It's making noise. But justice without praise is rootless. And I would add lifeless and, and, and joyless. But why pick, right? When we got a, we got a God in Jesus Christ who can do both. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.